My name is Sophie Prock, and I'm here today with Dr. Michaela King. Dr. King is a climate scientist at the University of Washington. She's a postdoctoral scholar and is currently employed at the Polar Science Center. She has a PhD in Earth Sciences from The Ohio State University and earned her Master of Science degree at the University of Delaware. Dr. King is especially interested in the Greenland ice sheet and is researching how sunlight and other factors can impact the ice flow throughout glaciers there. She's participated in numerous fieldwork programs and she's traveled to Alaska, Greenland, and even the South Pole. Now, Dr. King, tell us more about your research and career. What is it really like to be a climate scientist? Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, so for parts of my work, it involves the fun components, right, of actually going to the field to make those measurements and really get those what we call in situ observations. So actually going in the field, taking a sample or taking a measurement directly from the source. But I would say the vast majority of the research that I do, so let's say about 80% of my time, is spent analyzing data that comes from satellites. Uh, so they're mainly NASA satellites, but we also work a lot with the European Space Agency, uh, ESA, um, and we can get a bunch of really valuable information um, about what the, the satellites see, so how fast the ice is flowing, what the surface of the ice sheet looks like, is it really crevassed, um, is it smooth, is there water pooling on the ice? Um, so there's a lot of information we can get just even from photographs, which is kind of um, interesting to think about. And so a lot of the time when I come into my office, it involves uh, a lot of downloading the latest satellite imagery, processing it, and kind of trying to untangle what uh, what those images are showing about the changes going on on the ice sheets. It really sounds like, like there's a lot of factors that go into to really discovering what a glacier is like. I mean, it's not just, oh, the ice moved from here to here, but it's where it comes from, you know, like how the sunlight affects it. Like what are other factors that you that you look at when you're looking at a glacier? That is a super great question. And one that there's tons of glaciologists constantly asking that question, like what, what types of factors are impacting these glaciers? And it seems like we're learning something new every day, which is a little bit of a negative thing, I guess. Like we're always learning about new ways that glaciers are being sensitive and, and, and shrinking. Um, but so there, there are a couple, um, a couple different primary, what we call drivers or things about the environment that impact glaciers. Um, so you mentioned sunlight. So sunlight, if it can melt the surface, it can create uh, melt ponds on the surface. So if you think of like those really beautiful images from like Nat Geo with the bright like turquoise ponds on the, on the white ice, um, those form a lot in the summer on the Greenland ice sheet. Um, and because the ice is moving and it cracks apart, um, they'll sort of be like portals to from the surface down to the bottom of the ice. So think of it like a straight shot um, down to these crevasses or moulins, like tunnels through the ice. And so the water, even though it forms on the surface, it can enter into the ice and even go all the way down to the base of the ice sheet where it kind of lifts up the ice from under, from, up, from the bed, like separates the ice from the bed and it can make the ice flow faster. So if there's a lot of melt, um, that melt can drain below the ice and kind of impact how the ice flows. Uh, so that's also another way that um, ice is impacted as well. And then the glaciers are also sensitive to changing ocean conditions. So where the ice uh, comes in contact with the ocean, so where those big icebergs calve off into the ocean with this grand, you know, splash, um, if the ocean is warmer, if there's a lot of turbidity or 
that just means there's a lot of currents, uh, warm water kind of coming up and interacting with the front of the ice uh, that can also cause a lot of melt as well. So there's atmosphere, there's ocean, there's um, how water moves through the ice. There's so many different factors that interact together that it it kind of makes it a really interesting puzzle to try to solve. Now that you're you're talking about all those factors, a question popped into my head. Have you ever studied how animals and wildlife affect glaciers? I'm thinking of Arctic animals like penguins and whales. I mean, what do you know about that? There is a lot of research done on how changing glacier environments are impacting animals. Um, in Greenland, a really big, there's a really concerted effort to understand how as the glaciers melt and uh, retreat, how that impacts fishing. So halibut is a, a really big um, part of the Greenland economy, uh, fishing for halibut. Um, and they really follow where that fresh water is coming off, like where those icebergs are melting and putting fresh water into the ocean. Uh, and so as these glaciers retreat and where that fresh water is going in, or maybe the amount of fresh water going in is changing, that changes fishing patterns. And that has direct impacts then on the local communities that fish, they kind of have to learn how um, the fishing pathways are changing as these glaciers change, because um, the, the fish more or less follow the freshwater flux into the ocean. Um, one thing that kind of I directly, didn't directly witness, but sort of directly impacted how we did, conducted our field work was that um, as Arctic sea ice is, is receding, as there's less uh, coverage in the summer, it is impacting polar bears where they can, of course, go out into the ice and fish uh, and hunt. And so it's becoming more and more common to see uh, polar bears actually cross the ice sheet. Usually they don't come up on the ice sheet. I mean, it can be really high elevation and there's not there's nothing out there. It's technically a desert because um, it in some parts gets, you know, there's not, there's not much there. Uh, and so it's become more common to see icebergs in the middle, or I'm sorry, see polar bears uh, crossing the ice sheet. And so you have to kind of go through training and like what's what to do if you come in contact with a polar bear, um, how to behave. And that's not something you used to ever have to worry about because they would never see polar bears on the ice sheet. But now polar bears are kind of being pushed into zones that they didn't normally uh, occupy. Have you ever come into contact with a polar bear? I have not. No, the, the most interesting wildlife that I've I've seen are the Adelie penguins um, in Antarctica. And then in, in Greenland, we saw uh, wild muskox um, grazing. So, and they're huge, which is really cool to see, but no polar bears, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on <laughs> how you look at it. Could be both ways. Well, <laughs> so you know a lot about your job and it sounds like obviously to have this job, you should be very interested in what you're doing, but I wonder what initially interested you in this this field of study. Um, I think like I was always interested in a severe weather. Like I loved storms, um, and so weather slowly kind of morphed into climate. Like I loved learning about climate and weather. And of course, I think you know, as anyone maybe under the age of 40, 45, it's like climate change is like a really big issue that we hear about, and it's that has, directly is impacting our life and our future. And so that I knew I wanted to do something related to climate change. Um, and then I don't know if it was a matter of like watching some documentaries, but I was just really pulled in by how dramatically the icy polar landscapes are changing now because of climate change. Um, sometimes the impacts of climate change are more insidious. Like you don't, 
they're not so apparent or they, they take, they take a longer amount of time to kind of manifest, but with ice, I mean, it gets warm and it melts. Right. And so it has these really dramatic changes to the landscape. And I was like, you know, this is some like big picture stuff that is super intriguing, but also, wow, this has really big consequences for coastal communities. And uh, so I was just kind of like drawn to that. I, I don't really know exactly what tick, you know, what like triggered that interest, but um, it probably has something to do with just how beautiful <laughs> the locations looked as well. But I think it was just seeing how profound uh, the changes were in polar, uh, polar landscapes. And so um, I knew I, I really would want to study something about glaciology or something about how ice is changing. Um, and there it just kind of, you know, one decision after the other kind of decided how I focused on my area of research, but Mm-hmm. And throughout your career, you've been to numerous different locations to to study glaciers. So Greenland, Antarctica, other places. Tell us a little bit more about your travels and what you do while you're there, the preparation that goes into it. What's that like? Yes, great question. Um, so every time you go into the field, so let's say you go in the field for one month, there's probably at least that amount of time preparing to go in the field that happens beforehand. So you have to figure out what equipment we want to take. We have to test all the equipment, make sure, you know, we're not bringing faulty instruments into the field. There's also super tenuous, like to be able to ship all your instruments out, you have to ship them months ahead of time. And everything is, has to be labeled a certain way because you're essentially shipping like oftentimes hazardous material or like super large batteries. I mean, things that you don't normally can like put on a plane. So it takes a lot of planning uh, to get what you need at the location where you want it. Um, and I mean, and sometimes it's just the amount of material you have to take with you is massive. I, I remember when we went to Greenland, we were, um, and I, I think I showed a photo um, of this, but inside like the really large Air Force uh, aircraft. I mean, it's basically like this big hollow tube, it, but one, um, there were other team members with us that were actually going to a different site in Greenland where they were taking this giant sled. I mean, it was this, just this massive sled that they're using to like drag across the ice and drag a bunch of their like food and everything with them. But it took, it was like the size of a tank, but it was a giant sled. And just, so, you know, think about what it would take to plan how to even create that and then transport it. So there's a lot of planning that goes into it. Um, and then if you go to Antarctica, there are a lot of um, tests that you have to go through to make sure that you are in a, a healthy, uh, like that you are healthy enough to go there. Basically you don't, if you show that you're like at risk of maybe getting very terribly sick or um, if you have a problem that might come up while you're there because they're so limited and as far as they don't have a huge, um, they don't have like a, a huge team of doctors there. They have a couple doctors, but it's not, they're not going to perform surgery, you know, at the South pole, unless they absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going a little bit off on a bunny trail now, but it kind of as a side story um, for the people that overwinter uh, at the South pole, which means they're there the entire time it's dark um, because planes can't land uh, at night. Uh, it's just because it's so cold. They have to use old, technology where the actually the pilot can't use computers he has to actually see he or she has to see the difference in the surface uh to land the plane and so once you're there planes can't come anymore once it's because it's dark so planes can't land but somebody was uh critically ill like they were going to probably pass if they didn't get medical intervention and so everyone else at the south pole had to go out 
uh, and set up a runway of uh, big like 50 gallon barrels and like light them on fire with material to kind of create a runway just so the plane could see where it was coming and land to get this person out um, and evacuate them so that they could get medical attention. So it's like a huge undertaking when, when you do need it. Um, so all of that is to say <laughs> that you have to go through a bunch of what's called a physically qualifying process. Mm -hmm. um, I get my cholesterol tested, all my blood samples, you know, your eyesight, you get like dental um, x-rays, like all this stuff. It's super, and now I have like a great record of, you know, my, my health stats, but it's a really intensive process just that they want to make sure you're kind of healthy before they send you out into the field. So that's a big part of it as well. Right. And earlier or, or last month, I believe it was, you came and, and chatted with our school about your travels, your research, everything that you're doing. And I remember specifically about you talking about the frostbite that was possible in Antarctica, obviously. It's very chilly there. So what protective measures do you take to not get frostbite while you're there? Well, you, yeah, so frostbite is a very real, and I would say pretty common, at least mild frostbite um, injury for people to get in the field, especially in Antarctica, because a lot of times, especially if you're you're building uh, like a station and you need to like screw in a tiny, you know, you have like a washer and like a tiny screw and you're just trying to get things together. And you just want to rip off your mitten and just get it. Like, it's really hard to work with like small tools mm -hmm. with these big, massive, like 800 down gloves. Um, and, but you have to resist the temptation to do that because it doesn't take very long at all. Like just a few moments, I would say, I mean, on average, maybe like three to five minutes, if your hands exposed, uh, that you can get frostbite on your fingertips or on your nose. You always want to keep something over your nose and make sure and definitely covering your mouth so you're not breathing uh, directly into your lungs or else you can kind of get that frostbite almost inside. Um, it, but if you're touching metal with your bare hands, it's even faster. I mean, you will right. lose a lot of feeling pretty quickly. Um, one other big risk that people don't think about is sunburn. Um, and so there's been many glaciologists that I that are like mentors to me that have had uh, like some skin things removed oh, just because you don't think about it and you're essentially on a beach like a bright think of like a bright uh mm -hmm. beach in Greece or something like white sand beach it's a super reflective surface uh the sun is really even though you don't think of it as intense um it's reflecting basically all that sunlight back on you and so you'll get like intense sunburn at the bottom of your nose if you're not careful um and so some of actually like the biggest gnarliest tans I've had on my face are just a stripe across my face where my hat and my um, scarf weren't covering where when I was in the field in these polar regions. So sunburn is also one thing you want to make sure you're 100 or so, you know, um, SPF applying that pretty religiously. I'd also like to ask you, what can you tell us about your experience working in a mostly male dominated field as a woman? How different is it for you and and what what have you had to overcome as your research has progressed? I guess the main problem, if you can call it a problem that I had was just sort of an internal, uh, like I really wanted to prove myself, um, which is maybe my, you know, I was never really put in a position that I felt like I needed to, but I was the first time I went on the field, I was the only uh, woman on the team. And so I definitely maybe had a little bit of that internalized, like I didn't want to be do you bring anybody down you know and we were doing a lot of really physical stuff so I wanted to really go out and you know go get it but um I do remember the first time I jumped out of the plane I was just like hustling and um 
really, I, I didn't take it as slow as I should have. I didn't let my body acclimate. And I, I really did get like, I felt like I was going to pass out because there's not that much oxygen. I had to go and sit in the plane for a little bit and recover. <laughs> um, but that's my own fault. Like I was trying to prove something that I didn't need to, like the team knew I was capable and they were like, yeah, just take rest up. Like, you're fine. No problem. Just we'll come check on you in a little bit. And they were really great about it. Um, that said, I know like I've been fortunate in that. I, I know of colleagues that have had worse uh, experiences, but I think within the last five years, there's been like a lot of work done to make sure there's a lot of discussions beforehand. Um, and just for um, like minoritized genders in the in the field to make sure that all of those concerns are addressed uh, ahead of time. And then also the communication pathways, if someone has a problem or someone feels someone acted inappropriately, like who do you talk to and how do you remedy this? And so I think it's it's definitely moving in a more positive direction. But when I started, I definitely kind of had a little bit of that need to prove myself kind of attitude. I think it's very admirable what you're doing and you've worked so hard to get where you are now. And and it's it's good that you haven't come across that, but I can totally understand why you'd feel like you need to prove yourself. I really want to know why your research is so important to you. And you've discussed what you like about glaciers and what interests you and how you got into it. But what would you say is the overwhelming purpose or or why are you really in love with what you do? I think one of the big moments for me when I realized that what I'm doing is important, which maybe it took longer to realize than it should have. But the tip top point of my uh, PhD research was a publication that basically said, you know, we are losing this much mass through glaciers in Greenland. And so it was a really large scale study with like a really big kind of like bottom line number. Um, and it, yeah, it got a lot of attention, but it also, I mean, it, it was a good paper. It was, you know, a scientifically very robust paper. And so um, the IPCC, which is that um, intergovernmental panel on climate change that puts out every seven years, it's like a big report that different nations use to kind of guide their climate mitigation strategies. Um, I'd always like heard about this report growing up and, I'll, you know, in undergrad and grad school, and it's sort of like, the epitome of, you know, this is the state of the knowledge as we know it. And seeing they actually had a figure that it was like my data. Um, and it was in, you know, section of like how our ice sheets are changing or the ice sheets are losing this much mass. And it was, it was just seeing like a plot. It's like, hey, that's that's me. Like, so now like my work is being used uh, to tell, you know, uh, national leaders, like how much mass is being lost from the ice sheet. And so that that made me realize like, okay, what these, these days spent, you know, working in the office and kind of begrudgingly coding uh, late into the night, like this has uh, real world consequences. So I think that was kind of a, a moment for me that kind of gives me motivation to continue. That's really special. And what a cool thing to experience having your, your name and your research in, in such a big factor of, of how we decide what to do with, with how our climate's changing. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I, I was pretty proud of that. <laughs> All right. Well, once again, Dr. King, thank you for speaking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Stay tuned in, 88.9, for all you need to know about today's news and research, as well as music and conversation that spans generations. I'm Sophie Prock with KMIH Mercer Island. Mm-hmm.